and uh, left off at uh, the third and fourth heads of doctrine. Isn't it all, uh, I, I mean, I, I love what the canons say, but it really does sound like uh, uh, you're, you're, you're talking about a um, uh, medical diagnosis or a uh, car repair or something. The third and fourth heads, of, as, they, as we say in our third and fourth heads of the canons of the Synod of Dort, that's kind of a mouthful. Uh, but what's great about the canons, as you know, is that Everything is so scriptural. It's one of the reasons that it takes up so many, every article takes up space because they're not just stating it, they are defending it scripturally. And so what I'd like to do actually is uh, walk through, just do the, the, the very quick outline of the third and fourth points of doctrine and then we'll get to the last article which is uh, where Chuck told me you guys were. So if you want to, Turn in your canons of the Synod of Dort to the third and fourth heads on page 271. Just to get a bird's eye view of where the canons are headed when we get to the last article here. Oh, 906? Okay. Okay, sorry. 906. So, uh, the third and fourth main points of doctrine, human corruption, conversion to God, and the way it occurs. This was a huge part of the controversy with Arminians, of course, because, you know, um, it is still today. The points being uh, debated were really significant matters. Namely, whether regeneration is a miracle, whether the new birth is something that God gives us uh, gratis, even before we ask for it, or whether it's conditioned on something that we do. And so, you know, when, when you think about it, a lot of us came out of churches that taught the Arminian view, uh, the, the view that was being put forward here by the critics of the Dutch Reformed Church. Um, and by the way, this wasn't just Dutch Reformed. The Church of England sent delegates. They were part of this conference. Delegates came from Hungary and Poland and France and Switzerland, uh, Scotland. Um, so it was, it was, in that sense, ecumenical. Oh, and by the way, uh, it wasn't just the Church of England and... Uh, the Church of Scotland and the Reformed churches on the continent that embraced the canons of Dort. Uh, but Cyril Lucaris, how many of you have heard of Cyril Lucaris? All right. You, never in a room do you get people who, who know who he is. So Cyril Lucaris, uh, in, in about uh, uh, just a few years after the canons of Dort came out, Cyril Lucaris the patriarch of Constantinople, the ecumenical patriarch of all Eastern Orthodoxy, adopted the three forms of unity and made it part of the confession of the Eastern Orthodox Church, including the canons of Dort. Um, he says, they may kill me, but I am 
going to die, an Orthodox Catholic evangelical uh, uh, confessor of the Belgic Confession. Yeah. So they did kill it. Uh, they, they made good on his, uh, his offer, and uh, it was in the Ottoman Empire. So uh, the sultan was not very happy because he was stirring up the Russian Orthodox. He was sending monks to Geneva and, uh, and Oxford, where uh, the Heidelberg Catechism was being taught by Peter Martyr Vermilli to every student as part of the, the curriculum. You had to memorize the Heidelberg Catechism if you went to Oxford. Uh, sending monks. Can you imagine monks walking around Geneva from the Eastern Orthodox Church? And they went back and they started seminaries. And first printing press in the East was Cyril Lucaris bringing a printing press so that the New Testament could be translated and published. Uh, really amazing guy. So anyway, the sultan had him strangled at the instigation of Jesuits. So he kind of had two religions against him. Um, and afterward, the Eastern Orthodox Church had a little conference. Uh, it wasn't a major ecumenical council or anything, but it was a conference where they officially condemned the doctrines of the Reformation, justification, election, and so forth. So this is, this is uh, you know, there's a brief and shining moment when, when, you know, maybe we could have all been Eastern Orthodox and Calvinist. Um, that, that never happened. Uh, today, Eastern Orthodoxy takes the position that the Arminians took when it comes to the issue of conversion and regeneration covered in these heads. Synergism. Uh, synergia, synergy. You know, two people working together, they have synergy. That's the, the, the common view uh, of a lot of our evangelical brothers and sisters as well. Only usually in a more how-to form, like how to be born again. Um, you know, a book Billy Graham wrote years and years ago, How to Be Born Again. Canons of Dort, the, the fathers of the Canons of Dort would have, would have heard that as bizarre. That's, you know, like telling, going to, to a, a cemetery and, you know, give, handing people uh, five steps to coming back to life. Uh, you cannot born yourself again. It has to come, from, as Jesus said in John 3, the Spirit blows where He wills. Uh, you don't know where He's coming from. You must be born from above. It's something that comes to us, not something that we sort of you know, go through these five steps and then we're born again. So we're very much in the thick of the same controversies and debates that have uh, been targeted here at, uh, at, at Dort. First of all, Article 1, the effect of the fall on human nature. And this point here, I'll summarize as we go, um, hopefully not taking as long as the article itself. The uh, important point to make here is that human nature is not bad. You have to start with creation. You have to start with God creating our nature good. Sometimes we start with the fall. Humans are sinful and we need a savior. That's not the place to start. Place to start is humans are good. Humans are made in God's image. 
Human beings have lost nothing in the fall that they were given in creation, but they have corrupted it all. Okay, so you're starting with the idea that when we say people are totally depraved, we do not mean that they are as bad as they can possibly be. We don't mean that they're evil. Uh, as, as Calvin pointed out in the Institutes, even Satan isn't evil. That would be to impugn God as creator. Even Satan isn't evil. That's what makes him so horrible. That he has taken every gift that God has given him by nature and twisted it and corrupted it by his own free will. Shake your head. What? The most glorious angelic creature God ever made and this is what he turns into. Uh, so it, it, is, it is our responsibility that we have fallen away from the goodness. God is goodness. God is the sun uh, shining upon us. But if we turn away from the sun, we become darkened and, and cold. And that's what happens with sin. We're not naturally... When we say we're sinful by nature, we don't mean we're sinful by nature in the sense of being human, but that we're sinful by inheritance of corruption from Adam. And so the, the, it doesn't mean we can't think, can't reason. It means that when it comes to the things of God, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It doesn't mean that we can't experience, that we don't have sense experience, we can't touch things or hear things or learn things from the world around us. It just means that we put it all in a crazy patchwork quilt of our own devising. So would you say that we're totally spiritually depraved? Morally. Yeah, in fact, a great distinction that our theologians in this time and place made was between natural and moral ability. Um, do you have the ability to fulfill the law completely? You do, actually. In terms of natural ability, God made us naturally capable of fulfilling the law. But you don't want to. And I don't want to. And this is what's restored in regeneration. We want to, but we still, you know, wretched man that I am. But we don't have the moral ability. Our moral, our, our moral core is so twisted that we are in bondage. Our will is in bondage to sin. So we can't blame God. We can't say, oh, we're missing a part. Well, you took away this transistor when Adam fell. So, of course, I fell. Can't blame God. We are naturally good, but morally corrupt. And that's in Article 2, the spread of corruption and total inability. That's better, I think. It not only sounds better when you're talking to somebody. You know, I believe in total depravity. Uh, Ed Clowney at Westminster, uh, years ago, the late Ed Clowney, he, he used to say Calvinists are the only people who can be proud of knowing they're totally depraved. It, it's sort of a joke, but uh, sort of. 
total inability is better than total depravity because total depravity makes it sound like you are just as horrible as you can possibly be. Um, when you hear people describe Calvinism as total depravity, that's usually what you think. Depravity simply means that you are good, but you are there's a, a privation. That's where depravity comes from. Privation, in other words, evil isn't something, it's nothing. Evil isn't strength, it's weakness. Evil isn't a power, it's powerlessness. It's not moving towards the sun to receive its light. It's moving away. And so we're depraved. There's a goodness there that has been warped. We've moved away from the sunlight. And now we are spiritually dead. The light of nature cannot save us. Article 4, the inadequacy of the, the light of nature. There is, to be sure, a certain light of nature remaining in man after the fall. See? Nobody says that when they're describing Calvinism. There is, to be sure, a certain light of nature remaining in man after the fall. That's why we can read Cicero and uh, you know, so, so many of the ancients and come away marveling at their wisdom. A lot of the, a lot of the things that we're, we're hearing in Proverbs are found in Proverbs all around the world. There's a light of nature. When it comes to the law, we can all know the law. Naturally, because that's what we were created for. We were created good in order to do good. Now we're twisted and fallen, and so we intentionally misinterpret God's law. As Calvin puts it, we befuddle ourselves on purpose. It's just, it's, it's, nature is inadequate. It can, it can, the light of nature can help us with great scientific developments, even with morality, civic morality. But the light of nature cannot teach us the gospel. This light of nature is far from enabling man to come to a saving knowledge of God and conversion to him. So in fact, so far in fact, that man does not use it rightly, even in matters of nature and society. We see that all around us, right? It's sufficient. The light of nature is sufficient to get around in the world. Um, but we don't even do that properly. In this respect, Article 5, the inadequacy of the law, in this respect, what is true of the light of nature is also true of the Ten Commandments, given by God through Moses, specifically to the Jews. For man cannot obtain saving grace through the Decalogue, because although it does expose the magnitude of his sin and increasingly convict him of his guilt, yet it does not offer a remedy or enable him to escape from his misery, and indeed, weakened as it is by the flesh, leaves the offender under the curse. You can't imperative people into new birth. You can't tell them, you know, be born again. Tonight at six o'clock, we're going to have a service and get born again. You can't, you, you just can't, you, you can't do that. You're basically assuming that the law, a command, is going to be able to bring it about. Then article seven, God's freedom in revealing the gospel. Okay, well, if if the law, which everyone knows by nature, cannot bring any salvation, then 
How is it that some people are saved? Well, God is free to regenerate whomever he will. You see, that's the thing. If, if, if God just sort of made it possible for us all to be saved, but then put it in our hands, or the hands of a clever evangelist, salvation wouldn't be by grace alone. But because it is by grace alone, God is free to give it to whomever he will. God is free not to elect anybody. God is is free to show mercy on whom he will show mercy. But there is a serious call of the gospel, Article 8. Nevertheless, all who are called to the gospel are called seriously. Very important point. We're not hyper-Calvinists. We say, come unto me all, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We mean all. It's like, well, why do, you, why do you say that if they can't come? Well, first of all, Jesus said it. But the, the, and he's not an Arminian. So the second reason is because the external call goes out to everybody, but then the inward regenerating work of the Holy Spirit is to whomever he will. We don't know who the elect are, so we, we preach the gospel to everybody. If I were at Albertson's and they gave me the, the uh, mic uh, and said, hey, you know, whatever you want to say in one minute to everybody here, I would say, this, this is for you. Come, come and get it. Come unto me, all you are, whosoever will, let them come. See, again, people don't think Calvinists say that, but they do. We say that because that's what we believe. We don't say that because we're hedging or we're kind of fudging a little bit. We say it because Scripture says it. Whosoever will, let them come. Human beings are responsible for rejecting the gospel, Article 9. We have nobody to blame but ourselves and nobody to thank but God. If we don't believe the gospel, that's our fault. God's under no obligation to give us salvation, even though we don't want it. And that's why conversion is the work entirely of God. The fact that others, Article 10, who are called through the ministry of the gospel do come and are brought to conversion must not be credited to man as though one distinguishes himself by free choice from others who are furnished with equal or sufficient grace for faith and conversion, as the proud heresy of Pelagius maintains. No, it must be credited to God, just as from eternity he chose us as his own in Christ. So within time he effectually calls them, grants them faith and repentance, and having rescued them from the domain of darkness, brings them into the kingdom of his Son, in order that they may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light, and may boast not in themselves, but in the Lord, as apostolic words frequently testify in Scripture. And you could, there are all kinds of ways you could do this. You could go to John chapter, uh, start the Gospel of John, John 1, who were born not of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. And then you go to, uh, to chapter uh, to chapter 6, I'm kind of jumping over it. We could go to others before chapter 6, but uh, verse 44, uh, 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. All of my sheep will come to me. But you cannot come unless my Father draws you. Doesn't that seem to say the Father has the initiative to draw whom he will? And then in chapter 17, Jesus prays, or chapter 10, Jesus says, I know my sheep, my sheep know me. I lay down my life for the sheep. But then he tells the particular Pharisees he's talking to there, but you're not of my sheep. That's why you don't hear my voice. My sheep will hear my voice and they will come to me and no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. It's good news. And I just, sometimes people say, well, it's good news for the elect. Yeah, so be one. Right? So believe in Christ. How do you know you're elect? Believe in Christ. I think it's a great incentive. Right? Believe in Christ and then you know, well, you don't have to, 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 to wonder, do I have, you know, he, like a daisy, does he, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. You don't have to wonder. You know, if you place your faith in Christ, that you're one of his sheep. My dad was, whenever my mom and I would argue about this, way back when, when there were dinosaurs, uh, I... I remember my, uh, my dad would walk out and slam the door. And he told us he didn't want to hear us arguing about these things. So one day, my mom and I were arguing about it anyway, uh, in a friendly way, respectful way, um, at least on my, my part, no, on hers as well. My dad ran out, and I chased after him. I said, Dad, what is it? And I kept trying to you know, get him to turn around and talk to me, and I'm so sorry, Dad. I, I know you don't. And he turned around with tears coming down his face and said, what if your old man's not one of the elect? Oh, that's it. And I said, well, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. They follow me. Heard his voice, you follow him? Yes. You're one of his sheep. That's what his sheep do, Jesus said. And that just changed everything. After that, he was, he was actually a, a problem at family reunions, you know, trying to convert all my Armenian extended, extended family. He was so excited about, about this message. Um, let me jump now to the very end, where uh, what I'm supposed to be doing right now. Uh, Article 17, God's use of means in regeneration. It, after, after saying that it's all of God, it's all of grace... Uh, the synod doesn't want people to fall on the other side into the other error of saying that God does this directly and immediately without means. He regenerates the heart, but converts us. You know, that conversion is repentance and faith. He gives us repentance and faith through the preaching of the gospel. Isn't that what our catechism says? Where does true faith come from? By the preaching of the Holy Gospel and the administration of the Holy Sacraments. God uses means. So hyper-Calvinism says you don't preach the Gospel to everyone. You don't invite everybody, every man, woman, boy, and girl, to come to Jesus. You don't do that. We're Calvinists. That's a hyper-Calvinist position. And Calvinists do not say, well, just sit in a corner and wait if you're elect. He'll let you know. If you're not, then 
Uh, no, he uses means. Just like he did this morning. He uses, he uses human words authorized in his name to deliver to his people and signs and seals. God works through means. But the means don't bring about regeneration. The Holy Spirit brings about regeneration. So you can't have an ex opere operato view of sacraments. It's a Roman Catholic view that they work just by doing them. Just by performing them, it is done. That's what ex opere operato means. You press A7 and a Snickers comes out. That's, you know, if you do the right thing, you follow the right procedure, the right rituals, this will happen. But Protestants do it too. You know, if you just come forward, raise a hand, sign a card, do, you know, follow these four steps to being born again and so forth. It's, this, it's the same way of thinking, and that's why they say at the end uh, that this is actually the Pelagian doctrine that was rejected by fathers long before. Um, yes. Okay. Well, it's in one of the articles that I, that I skipped over. Uh, it's, it refers to the Pelagian heresy. So I thought, now as we're closing, I would, I would take us to where I think they would take us. They don't mention Council of Orange, but they say, uh, that, the, that the Catholic Church, which we're a part of, the Catholic Church long ago uh, declared this Arminianism to be a heresy. That's true. Did you know Thomas Aquinas believed in total depravity, unconditional election, particular redemption, or limited atonement, uh, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints? Yeah, I mean, he just didn't get justification. And that was the same with, with Augustine. But this is what happened when the Pelagian controversy uh, came around. It was not only Pelagianism that said, we can save ourselves, thank you very much. God has provided his law, and we can fulfill it. We can do what God requires in order to be saved. That's the Pelagian view. A semi-Pelagian view that being condemned by the church, a second view came up called semi-Pelagianism, which, as its name sounds, uh, says, reach out to Jesus, he's reaching out to you. If you do your part, he'll do his part. Just show him a little, give him something. Show him a little earnestness, a little sincerity, and he'll do the rest. That's semi-Pelagianism. That is basically consistent with the Arminian position. And the fathers at Dort recognized that. Now, the color of the Netherlands, as you'll know if you, you watch uh, World Cup, is orange. Um, from William of Orange. Anyway, these are the canons of orange from 529 AD. After this controversy, here is what the Catholic Church said is ca- official Catholic doctrine. Canon 1, if anyone denies that it is the whole man, that is body 
and soul that was changed for the worse through the offense of Adam's sin, but believes that the freedom of the soul remains unimpaired and that only the body is subject to corruption, he's deceived by the error of Pelagius and contradicts the very scriptures which say, that soul that sins shall die. And do you not know that if you yield yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey? For whatever overcomes a man to that, he is enslaved. So they're just quoting scriptures like the canons do. Canon 2. If anyone asserts that Adam's sin affected him alone and not his descendants also, or at least if he declares that it is only the death of the body which is punishment for sin and not also, that sin which is the death of the soul passed through one man to the whole human race, he does injustice to God and contradicts the apostle who says, therefore as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men sinned. Canon 3, if anyone says that the grace of God can be conferred as a result of a human prayer. But that it is not grace itself which makes us pray to God in the first place. (laughs) He contradicts the prophet Isaiah or the apostle who says the same thing. I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Canon 4. If anyone maintains God awaits our will to be cleansed from sin but does not confess that even our will to be cleansed comes through the infusion and working of the Holy Spirit. He resists the Holy Spirit himself, who says through Solomon, the will is prepared by the Lord. And the apostle who says, for God is at work in you both to will and to work for your own good pleasure. For his own good pleasure. Canon 5. If anyone says that not only the increase of faith, but its very beginning, even the desire for faith, <laughs> by which we believe in him who justifies the ungodly, and comes to the regeneration of holy baptism. If anyone says that this belongs to us by nature and not by a gift of grace, that is, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, amending our will and turning it from unbelief to faith and from godlessness to godliness, it is proof that he is opposed to the teaching of the apostles. And then he goes on to quote, uh, they go on to quote verses after that. This is the Synod of Orange. Canon 6, if anyone says that God had mercy on us, while apart from his grace we believe, will, desire, strive, labor, pray, watch, seek, study, ask, knock, but does not confess that it is by his grace alone, the spirit working within us, that we have the faith, the will, or the strength to do any of these things. You get the idea. God God gets there first. God is doing all of this. And there's one more point here I want to make as we close. I'm not going to spend any more time on the canons. You can see, if you look closely at the canons of Dort, I think you can see they're saying nothing different than what the Roman, well, the Catholic Church, was the Roman Catholic Church, yeah, the, the Catholic Church decided in 529 AD. Uh, the, so very, 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 very quickly here. This is a very important point, I think, that both the church in 529 and the church in 1618 
understood that we really need to, to bear in mind. You have on one side people who say it's free will, the other side people who say uh, that, that God does everything without any means or, or so forth. We don't put the will of man and the sovereignty of God in tension as, li- as if they're on a seesaw. The more sovereign God is, the less responsibility or freedom we have. It's the opposite. The only reason you and I have any freedom at all is because God is sovereign. He gives us a copy of his sovereignty. It's a copy. It's not a piece of his sovereignty. It's our own creaturely copy, but we have all of the freedom in the world to accept him or reject him. All of the freedom in the world to make our own decisions. Problem is, ever since the fall, that we have surrendered that will to sin and death. And so we have a bound will. Not because of the sovereignty of God, but because of sin. And that's what needs to be, we need to be liberated from. Not God's sovereignty, but sin and death. And thank the Lord that he is sovereign enough to give us our free will back. Though we were dead in sins, we're alive in Christ. Now able to love him and our neighbor. All right. Uh, I'm sorry I didn't leave any time for questions, but uh, uh, we'll... So that's why we have to die? Well, this is, really, this is about the regeneration, the spiritual regeneration. That, that is, he begins there... But he's not finished until he raises us bodily as well. I, I need to let people uh, collect their uh, offspring. And um, thank you for your patience. <laughs>